Welcome to the One Big Idea Podcast, your guide to making it in Web3. Each week, I sit down with the brightest founders, creators, and thought leaders to unpack the lessons, strategies, and trends you need to know for venturing into the world of crypto. This episode is brought to you by Rug Radio, the world's largest decentralized media company changing the way creators build, distribute, and own their content. To learn more about this Creators First community, visit Rug Radio at www.rug.fm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of One Big Idea. We are joined this week by Adam Levy. Adam hosts the podcast Mint, is the leading podcast documenting the Web3 creator economy, and he's also the co-founder of Bello, a no-code analytics tool empowering creators with actionable insights on their collections. Welcome, Adam. What's up? Thank you for having me, Austin. I'm honored so, to be here. I am very excited about this. Um, in addition to the general bio, Adam has not only been a great friend to me, but also a mentor as I step into the podcasting game. So this is a real treat for me and audience. Selfishly, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions that I would like to know as I'm stepping into, you know, in front of the mic. So I like that we get to reverse the uh, the tables a bit on Adam this week, and and he's put in the in the hot seat. Yes, thank you, thank you. I'm excited to be in the hot seat. I'm rarely in the hot seat. I'm usually the other side of the spectrum where you are, Austin. So it's a little weird for me to be on the guest side, but nonetheless, we are here now. I'm excited. Let's get into it. Let's run it. So getting into it, we're gonna dive into Mint and everything that you're doing there. I'd love to generally know. Take us back to when you first got into crypto. What excited you about it? Uh, yeah, what, what what was the environment like? You know, why did you why did you lean into it? Sure. So you'll see there's a drum set behind me. I've been playing the drums since five years old. It's always been music uh, as the number one thing in my life growing up. And very, very much so as I entered my college phase around uh, 2017, I came across Bitcoin at that time. And I saw sort of like a publicly traded asset trading at 20K. And I'd never really seen that prior uh, so much. And I also come from a background of technology. My dad's an immigrant from, from Israel. And uh, he was always like the, the tech guy that would fix people's computers when, uh, when, when shit would hit the fan. So I got a lot of my love for technology through him. And so seeing Bitcoin at 20K caught my attention. But what kept me in the door was what you could do with the tech. I thought that was really cool. And I was seeing sort of like the early instances of how creatives were using the tech. I was like, all right, you can do more than just, than just uh, day trade, excuse me, then you have my attention, I'm in. So this was around the time where uh, winter break came about at college. And I read the Bitcoin white paper, spent like four weeks indoors, just like consuming as much content as I could, um, only to start writing in Facebook groups. If you want to learn about Bitcoin on a Saturday at 3 p.m., meet me in this room. I'll be doing a whiteboard session. And three people came to that. And five people came the next week. And like we kept on doing it week after week. And at the same time, my friend was sort of starting like a, his early instance of like a crypto club. And then he dropped out. So I took it over and grew it to a bunch of students. And I got my first internship through that and so on and so on and so forth. So yeah, I'm very much a community builder. You'll realize by my experience is that I'm not the technical side of crypto. And at the time, around 2017, that was a bit challenging to find work because all the projects sort of raised money and we were going through the ICO era and people were just building tech and there wasn't a real need for community people just yet. Um, but I felt like we were at the precipice of where or front-facing roles were sort of sort of appearing. And my first gig and my first opportunity was working at a venture fund, interning at a fund, and I uh, was doing that during college. And I then also like 
lived in Europe for a little bit and was working in and out of uh, Switzerland and Austria because the crypto scene was popping over there and came back to LA. Like, I don't know. I have this like weird sort of like puzzle piece journey that I look back and, and it's it's a little interesting, but it all makes sense, I guess. <laughs> I'm so here now here, somehow. <laughs> you made it here. Yeah it's, yeah. it's always one of those things. I was literally just reflecting on this the other day. If, if you would have told me at 30 years old that I would be a podcaster talking about Web3, I think 18-year-old Austin would be like, what, what happened? Like, I thought we were going to be a sports agent. Like, I don't, I don't know wow. what's going on. <laughs> but no, it, to that point, when you got into venture... Were you actively doing anything in crypto? Was it something that you were doing on the side? Like, how did how did you go from that point to to where you are now? So when I got when I got that first internship, um, I was doing actually community stuff. They didn't let me touch like any of the investment stuff, um, respectfully. Good thing they didn't. So I was just doing <laughs> conferences because they saw my ability to put together conferences through the clubs that I was a part of on campus. And um, from there, they, uh, they're they like, all right, Adam, you can do conferences, you can do community, come do our conferences, but specifically come lead our media like partnerships arm, because we wanted to find a bunch of like uh, publishers from Cointelegraph to CryptoSlate to write about the conference. And in exchange, we would provide them free tickets, give their journalists like a cool experience. And it was up to me to sort of like biz dev relationship that entire sort of ordeal. Um, so I did not get into venture side of venture right away. I got more into like the PR and the marketing and the community building side. Um, and funny enough, when I graduated college, like I said, I was in Europe for a little bit, but when I came back from Europe, I joined that fund full time. So between interning and working full time, it was like two and a half years before I quit a little over a year ago to start a podcast. Um, and it's like weird. Why would you leave a fund to start a podcast? Who does that? Um, I did that because I was doing uh, I was doing podcasting at the fund as well. So I was the only full time employee between three other partners, and I wore multiple hats doing all sorts of things. And podcasting was one of them. I had the show called Blockchain and Booze, and like keep in mind, like I joined the the firm full time after graduating. Uh, my first day was was March fifteenth, twenty twenty, which was the oh, first wow. day of COVID. Was yeah, was yeah. the first day of lockdowns, right? And people could no longer do their post-work meetups or networking events, but ideas still needed to be shared and drinks still needed to be shared. So I brought that online and created this cool thing called Blockchain and Boost. And every Tuesday evening, I drink with someone live in front of an audience and it'd be fun. It was a lot of fun. It was live streamed even on Cointelegraph. We got anywhere between 10,000 to 50,000 live viewers every single wow. Tuesday. And it was great. It was really, really fun. And I was able to interview and have the opportunity to talk to like, Mark Cuban and the mayor of Miami and like the early DeFi OGs like Stani from Ave and synthetics from uh, uh, came from synthetics. And what's funny is that like this whole transition of starting blockchain and booze was also around the time where DeFi summer kicked in. And a lot of these projects that launched were very anonymous, but there are only a few that really put their face behind their projects. And those served as a platform on blockchain and booze. So I was able to document a lot of that stuff and, and be super involved in that in a very small way. Um, and that sort of like helped me fall in love with the whole side of, with like the whole sort of like communications podcasting side. And it's like, all right, I want to, I want to focus more on the creator economy. The fun that I was working at was focusing more on like digital securities, like digitizing securities, tokenizing securities. And it wasn't sort of my cup of tea personally. I, my interests weren't there. So started Mint as a way to sort of document what was happening in the Web3 creator economy and, and to sort of learn what all these other creatives were doing, sort of build, monetize and own their audience. And I thought that was really, really cool. So I was like, all right, I'll play a smart part, small part, and and help document this, the the process. 
So where that's so fascinating that you were able to leverage your full-time job to be able to do podcasting and realize that like, oh, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at this. And I have like a really strong interest in wanting to build this out on my own. Where did the connection to the creator economy come in? Like, where did that spark of, oh, I, I find this really interesting. I think this is going to be a big thing. I want to dive into it. I think selfishly it came from like my my childhood experience of playing the drums, right? So that drum set behind me. And, and I remember one of the episodes that I had, which is the most watched episode of Blockchain and Booze. It has 50,000 uh, um, post-recorded videos on YouTube or views on YouTube. And wow. it's me, Cooper Turley, and Justin Blau. And it was super early on talking about like what the future of NFTs look like and was lucky enough to host that discussion on Blockchain Booze and, and moderate that. And I can confidently say like, like well, not confidently, but I can, I can say that Cooper played a big role in that. Blau p- played a big role in that, whether they know this or not, right? Like seeing what those those characters were doing online and a bunch of other sort of project founders and community builders and how... They were finding ways to monetize, right? And sort of like also pursue their passions and their creative interests was was really, really inspiring to me, you know? And I always had this notion growing up because my parents are immigrants, right? My, my dad's from Israel. My mom's from Israel. My dad moved here when he was 25, didn't know the language, had like a couple thousand dollars in his pocket and was able to figure it out. My mom migrated from Mexico, literally got immigrated, right? Through the border. And our, their dream for us was sort of to, to go to college, get a degree, Go to work at Google, JP Morgan, all that stuff. I felt like I had a decent chance at playing the drums professionally. But I was like, no way. You're not going to play the drums, right? You're going to do something more professional. I have a business. Figure it out. Figure out a way to make money, right? And it's not going to be through music. So now, candidly, like I was 17, 18 when that happened. So only figuring out my life, not even. So really trusting my dad's word. The only sort of result is to kind of like pursue my tech and creative interests. And that was what was happening in crypto, right? Back to like the the 2017 era of seeing what you could do with the technology and how creatives were liberating themselves through it. So there's a there's a lot of like history behind it, I guess, from growing up to then what seeing my what my peers and and like indirect mentors were doing, right? Um, and yeah, I think I think that's sort of like the foundation. Yeah, I'm really curious, given that you got pushback from your dad around wanting to make it as a professional musician. How on earth did he respond to you saying, hey, I'm going to leave my venture capital job and be a podcaster full time? You know, what's crazy is that forget about venture capital. I'm going to go work in crypto. I told him I'm going to play with with internet. I'm going to play with internet funny money because I think it's the future. And he's like, you're a psycho. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, look at the dollar in my hand. I'm opening up my wallet. Look at the hundred dollar bill. Like, that's money. Like, no, dad. No, it doesn't work like that. Blah, blah, blah. So it was very much me going against his will because I really believed in this, like many others did in the space, right? No different. Yeah. Um, and now him hearing that I want to leave a fund to sort of pursue my own creative endeavors, right? He was actually very supportive of it. He's like, you, you proved me wrong because now I've bought in crypto and I've been able to benefit from it, you know, and I've helped him sort of, sh- I showed him the ropes and not only him, many other people in my family, like cousins, whatever, my uncles, my aunts. And, um, they finally saw it and they understood it because they had skin in the game and like, all right, go do whatever you want. Like you obviously get it, you know, and I would lie to you if I told you that it didn't matter, right? It, did, it does matter. It's, it's always yeah. good. It's always positive to get support, right? Like that reassurance. But I guess I would have done it either, either way. Anyhow, maybe I'm not sure. It's hard to tell now. 
Yeah. It's tough. And yeah, you want your, your loved ones to support you. And I, I go through a similar thing with, with my parents. So I think there's an inherent amount of trust where it's like, I don't necessarily get it. And it's not the path that I would have chosen for you per se, but I trust that you know what you're doing, that we raised you right. And I think a big piece of it, you mentioned earlier, you know, having your contemporaries in Cooper and Blau and being able to share space with them and be able to see the ideas that were permeating that base, like it very much is a insular, particularly even a year ago, like a very small tribal community. And to have the support of your peers, to see them being successful, to see their belief also keeps you going. Right. So being able to lean into you know, your friend group is, is incredibly important. I'll tell you what, um, and I owe a lot of my, my foundation, if not all of it, to the fund that I was working at, Alone and Joseph. They're really great marketers and they've done really well for themselves. And the partner uh, of them sort of bringing in to sort of like fuel their endeavors, but also co-invest with, with them is, is really impressive. And I learned a lot from them. But I remember there was a moment where Cooper was telling me, he's like, dude, you got to quit the job and you got to do other stuff because if you're only confined to the to the bounds of, of the venture fund and you really can't do anything beyond that, you really can't be a better Web3 user because you, you have to be you have to be a DGEN publicly also, right? And get yourself involved in different projects to build a network, to build a foundation and just continue that continue that cycle. And it's like you're you're NGMI if you don't quit the job. And it was because of that conversation, legit because of that conversation, I was like, you're absolutely right. Right. Like yeah. I really I, I recognize what I had. It served as a great it's a great platform. I got a lot from it and I'm internally grateful for that experience. But there's stages, I feel like. And I think everybody sort of encounters them at different times. My time was realizing that I want to do more and I had this creative side that I want to pursue and had people that helped me get through that finish line for sure. Absolutely. And I feel like it's funny. Cooper probably has had that conversation with you know dozens of our friends of, okay, it's ready. It's time to make the jump. Like right. he is very much the one, you know, carrying the water for everyone. Right. It's funny. So it's I'd love to know. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, we love Cooper. Um, would love to know, take me back to the very beginning of the podcast. So you decide to go off on your own. You have an idea of what you want it to be about. How did you go about actually like bringing it into fruition so before i had quit i had recorded 10 episodes of the podcast very low-key because i wanted to i i was doing blockchain and booze and i didn't want to sort of end that i was really enjoying it uh, and sort of built dude like the smallest audience but a community is a community and i wanted to have content to sort of like bring that on even if it was just one person listening it's enough for me um and I never did mint, and I guess I'll, I'll also like backtrack for a minute. I remember my last day was on a Friday. The following Saturday, I woke up at like 3 a.m. with an anxiety attack, trying to think about like, what am I going to do for money? Very simply put, how am I going to sustain yeah. myself? Um, because I had offers from companies like Consensus and other startups, like great offers to sort of pursue, but nothing really felt right to me, to be to be frank. Um, and I felt like my risk that I was taking, I was working in the high risk industry, but the reward, I was not reaping the equal reward, right? High risk, high reward. Working at the fund didn't really allow me to see that. So I was like, all right, we're going to take a bet over here. We're going to, we're going to do this for a few months. We'll see what happens. And that following Tuesday, Thursday was able to bring in Coinvise and Poop that believed in my vision and were able to sponsor me and gave me funds to basically start whatever it is I wanted to start. And without them, I could have not done 
what I what or 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 Mint is right now. Like purely, like, very simply put, Janiel from Coinvise, Patricio from Poop, you're the first two people to bet Shout on out. me with their wallets, and um, that changed. That literally changed my creator life, like hands down. And if you if you're a creator like listening to this, I think there's a really key lesson there and it's something we had talked about before i decided to start this podcast which is there is a whole host of individuals and companies that want you to win they like they're waiting for you to reach out you've done the work to create because it would have been a different conversation had you not done the podcast before had you not already shown what you were about and that you were capable of doing this like you put in the work and then you you went out and reached out to people and said, hey, would you you know help me in this journey? And for them, it's like being able to support a creator at the beginning and being able to get that clout to say, you know, I was there first um, as they're building their audience is is also big. So any creator that is out there, you know, when I was at Venice, we would talk about this often. It is a beautiful thing and not something that will last forever that we have a very good sense of most of the major like collectors and brands in the space. Like, you know, the names, you know, the people that work there, you interact with them on a daily basis. Like there are no boundaries in terms of like, you can jump on a Twitter space, you can hit them in the DMs. Like there are so many opportunities for you to actually establish those connections. If you just go out and take them. A hundred percent. I agree with you. And very simply put, a lot of companies have raised a lot of money. And they only really have the budget to build technical, bring technical people and product people onto their onto their um, payroll, and they really rely on people like you and I, Austin, to build an audience and for them to sponsor that and to give us money to sort of like propel their products, right, in a very ethical, very genuine way. Um, for example, what's an ethical and genuine way? One thing that I did very early on was I gave po-ops to all the speakers that came on the podcast, right. And that was an agreement that Patricio and I had to sort of like implement POAP into creator culture, right? Give all these speakers a POAP, right? Coinvise wanted a deal flow of creators to build next to. So they used Mint as a way to kind of like propel their message. And through there, they were, t- t- they were able to deliver the- to them really quality services and products, right? So it's all, it's all a win-win situation. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that creators make is they sort of, they, they fall flat and they, they get tempted with, with shitty deals, right? And shitty sponsorships, especially during the bull market. And they take that and they, they destroy their reputation, right? And only the audience can sort of determine whether or not I've done that for myself, whether I've destroyed my reputation or elevated uh, my content using the partners. But I think, I think I've done the latter, to be frank, um, because I've put such a level of focus in, in understanding who are the people I should be partnering with and understanding who my audience is and understanding what what's in their wallet, right? Number one, which we can get into later, and finding the right Absolutely. partnerships based off what they're already enjoying and what they're already doing, what they're already doing, right? So yeah, yeah, that thoughtfulness is really important if you're a creator. It's a it's a battle that I am learning just getting into this, you know, a couple couple months in, right? Where the opportunities will be there, and you have to have the self belief that even if you say no to something that isn't the right fit today, that something better is going to come around tomorrow. And I think a lot of creators get caught in the trap of, okay, this is what I have right now. Like I have to do this or like I have to be able to put food on the table and they take deals that they shouldn't when they should be asking questions. And the thing that I would say to, to anyone listening who is going on this creative journey is to lean on your peer group. 
like when I was debating, you know, who I was going to take on as sponsors and how I was going to build this out. Like Adam was a sounding board, Carly was a sounding board, Cooper was a sounding board. Like find people who are in your peer group that you can really lean on and know that you don't have to figure this all out alone and who have your best interest at heart. Uh, but yeah, and do it and to your point, do it in a very ethical way. Sure. And people that will tell you if it's not. <laughs> right, right. I think I think for me another thing is the future of creator brand partnerships is no longer through a wire transfer necessarily. It's through collecting an NFT because you can token gate NFT. You can't token gate a wire transfer. And brands want to be ingrained in a creator's community, right? It's not just going to be like a one-off type of post that sort of um, that sort of you get a promo for on TikTok. Like those absolutely work. Those have done com- like incredibly well. But my my prediction, my bet, someone who's documenting the creator economy is that. Every creator is at some point going to be, to some extent, uh, uh, token enabled, right? And through that, brands are going to be token enabled and doing collaborations on chain using your collectors who've collected your tokens and brands buying into your community versus renting your community is, is going to be sort of the takeaway. So one person that helped me understand that best is the person who sort of introduced the NFT sponsorship model for me, which was Janelle from Coinvise. And selfishly also trying to use their product to understand like how you would do a sponsorship using membership NFTs at the time at the early stages of Coinbase's platform. And that sort of like triggered like a really cool, interesting case study of even going to brands and especially the Web3 ones because they understand what an NFT is. They understand what it is to collect something, right? So collecting an asset from a creator or whether not even an asset like a, because uh, um, sometimes when I say asset, I don't want to be, I don't want it to be confused with the security, but like a token right. from a creator that has pure like advertisement based utility right is the unlock right is super powerful and and i guess very meaningful for these brands and something that i learned very early on because what that does when they purchase the nft from the creator they can then do this pr component on online across crypto twitter of posting that nft and showing the world that they align with that creator's community by buying into their community right so that was like an interesting thing that i learned through monetization because i had to find a way to make money so POA yeah. and, and Coinvisor are the first ones to sort of collect those NFTs for me. Yeah, exactly. And you did that with season one that you were you were focused on having token sponsorships from the very beginning. Yeah. If you think about it from just like a breadcrumb, say I was there type of perspective, now Coinvice and POAP can go back you know, years from now and, and actually still have that in their wallet instead of it just being a contract that was signed in a wire transfer, there's actually a digital fingerprint that they were there at the very beginning, which will continue to reap rewards for them in the future. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Cool. So let's let's dive into the Mint Podcast. I'd love to know, you structure in a really interesting way where you do these seasons and you talked about how you did, basically you filmed season one before you actually moved over to do it. So tell me a, a bit about the format, the type of people that you bring on, what you're looking to learn from them, um, and, and we'll take it from there. Yeah. Another inspiration sort of coming into the creator space for me was, was uh, Anthony Pompliano indirectly. I don't even think he knows this, but I, I, I consumed a lot of his content very early on in 2017 or just like came across him at, to some extent very early on in my career. I don't remember at what touch point. But nonetheless, like I saw how well he was doing and how, how fast he built it up an audience in two years, right? was able to do really, really well through, um, yeah, through monetization, sponsorships, investments, whatever it may be. So for me, I wanted to do something different because one thing I didn't like about the podcast and other podcasts in general is like, you're at episode 352, you know, it would just be like another episode. 
And I really fell in love with like the Netflix season model. You know, like when you introduce a season, you release a bunch of, of episodes and there's a lot of pre PR and promotion that come through that. So I was like, all right, so I'm going to record all these episodes and then I'm going to introduce season one of the podcast. And then I'm going to release all these episodes at the same time and see what happens. And, and, <laughs> and nobody gave a shit. <laughs> so I was like, all right, all these episodes are already out. Next season, next what next season? I'm gonna do season two. I'm gonna keep it a season because I still think like it it did well in terms of like publicity online, right? Because I create the graphic and everybody sort of like clicks, likes it, shares it, whatever. But not everybody watched the episode, so I was like, all right, it's like ten hours of content overload. I killed everybody. Like Adam, take it back a step. So season two comes around. I was like, all right, I'm gonna figure out my publishing schedule because then I looked at David Dobrik and he was able to build like this influential audience publishing every day. Uh, for a four minute and 20 second video and everybody knew him for that you know so i was like okay season two comes around i'm going to curate the lineup i'm going to pre-record a few episodes and then i'm going to introduce the lineup but only introduce an episode every tuesday and thursday okay and then people can expect to sort of receive this content and they'll sign up for it so it'll drive a lot of emails it'll drive a lot of subscriptions it'll drive a lot of visits to my website but i can do it in a way where i can tease them and create this like continuous sort of like communication loop of their RSVP to the content that I produce, right? I was like, all right, season two worked out really well. Season three came along, worked out really well. Um, season four was probably my biggest season yet because it was the first time I was like, all right, I'm doing these seasons, but maybe I should focus on a theme, right? And so I sort of just like do like right. generalized content. So I introduced music NFTs as the theme, right? And I remember particularly that was like the most monumental sort of shift in my creator journey because i saw the most amount of subscribers viewers listeners page viewers like everything sort of accelerated to the next level because i just created 20 freaking episodes on music nfts it was like overload but i answered i feel like i answered almost every question and got every single founder and investor that was doubling down on that niche to talk about that information right and then did that and you know what's funny? A lot of the people that I meet at conferences, they're like, oh, I came in through season four and here's my pull-up to claim it or here's my NFT to claim it. And I'm like, so what do you do? He's like, oh, I'm a musician. You know? So, which is interesting because if you look at right now, like the current state of the creator economy, like music artists are the hottest creators right now, right? And yep. they're seeing the most amount of success for, for different reasons. Um, and I feel like I timed that perfectly for whatever reason. And in that, like, without even like trying, I was like, fuck it. Like this interests me. I'm a musician. I think I'm going to see the most amount of excitement for myself through this content. I'll be able to ask the most intense questions through it. Um, and then season five came along and we did web three social and music NFTs. And then season six, which we're on right now is sort of like on chain data in the creator economy. And every single season I pick the theme and then I curate the lineup to sort of talk about that theme. But that's my format. Yeah. And I love that there's a few things to like pull at that. One was your format is iterative. You had a thesis of, okay, like I want to do a season's worth of content. I'm going to drop it all at once. Very much like Netflix, all you can eat model of season one. You didn't get it exactly right, but you knew that there was still something there that worked. And so being able to fine tool it as you went season by season and this idea I really appreciate of, looking at other successful creators and how they set expectations with their audience, how they created these feedback loops with their audience, uh, taking all of those lessons and almost creating this like tribe of mentors, whether you were directly uh, related or connected to them or not, 
using all of that feedback. Because that's the beautiful thing about being a creator in 2022. You don't need to know a bunch of people. You can just open your phone and figure out what's working on TikTok, what's working in podcasting, you know, what's working on Twitter, what's going to work, what, how can I put like my flavor on it, what's going to work for me and then continue to to build in that way. So I love that it's been like this iterative process for you as you, you're moving through season six right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think also one of the biggest learning lessons for me was um, that I can't do everything myself. And if I really want to like help creators, then I can't be the only one editing or creating graphics or doing all that stuff. So I had to figure out how to create like a small, uh, a mini assembly line of distribution and execution, right? Because I felt like season one, I did everything myself. And then season two, I brought somebody on to help me. And then season three, I brought another person. And then season four, another person. And I think now we're about a team of like four. Yeah, we're a team of four right now. And I have someone that helps me with like my newsletter now, right? And my my publishing and my graphic creation. And yeah, I, I, I learned that throughout the way that a lot of these creators who, who do stuff at scale and that do like a a full-time sort of like endeavor through it, even though I feel like the podcast is very much like a side hustle for me. Um, they have a team of people that help them with that, right? So if I wanted to get to the next level in terms of more sponsorships, more revenue, more content, right? I had to find my my sort of way to automate. So that's me saying, shouting out my team and that I love them and that I wouldn't be doing what yeah. I'm doing and I couldn't be doing what I'm doing without them. Yeah. Shout out the mid yes. team. And it, it is something where... Doing it yourself first, I think, is a very good step. I think some people try to rush to go and outsource everything. They've read the four-hour work week. They're like, okay, like focus on you know what I'm really good at, what my superpower is, and, and get rid of everything. But when it comes to actually hiring those people, you kind of got to know what you're looking for. Like you have to have a good sense of, okay, this is what I struggled with. This is what I need to hire for. You know, when I was putting out, before I dropped the podcast, I was just narrating the newsletter. And I did that purely to get a sense of, okay, what does it look like to put audio up through Anchor and like distribute to all these different uh, platforms? And what does it look to actually edit audio? Like, what is that process? How long should that take? Okay, these are the things that I'm going to need. And then you start to like slowly outsource. And you did it, sounds like gradually, like you added people over time as the podcast got bigger, you had more needs and you figured out, okay, this is where I can add the most amount of value. So this is where I'm going to lean in yeah. and focus. Yeah. I also um, I also think that it takes time, um, and I think I got very lucky with people sort of seeing my previous work and being able to bet on me and me having that foundation to be able to do that. Um, I don't take that for granted, and I recognize, and, I, and I'm forever grateful for those two companies that sort of saw that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that you have to do everything yourself before you know what to outsource and who to bring on, because you have to teach everything else to somebody else, right? And have them do it like how you sort of like see it fit in that. How you yeah, want exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it is very much like an art and a science because what you're going to want as a creator is not necessarily what other people are going to yeah. want. Like there's not always a right and wrong way. It's, it's to your style. So having a strong point of view is going to make you a better partner to your team in the long yeah. run. I think um, I'll go ahead. Do you want to say something? No, I just I wanted to to transition yeah, into please. some of the key learnings that you've had uh, bringing on all these creators and founders. What's kind of like the through line between the seasons of what the experience of being a creator is in Web three today? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple things you brought up. 
lessons learned and what it means to be a creator in Web3 today, I want to start with lessons learned really quick because you talk to so many people, you build an incredible network, right? Um, and your your network is predicated on giving, right? You're always giving somebody time to be on your platform to then have access to an audience of listeners, right? Which has power. At the beginning, it's hard to scale that, but what sort of kept me through it because a lot of podcasts fail, I think like 80% of podcasts fail. I never did it for an audience. I always did it because I wanted to learn genuinely, like flat out wanted to learn and just so happened I had a microphone that I could record at the same time. And the only way that somebody right. would actually take the time out of their day to speak to me and answer my questions was that if I recorded them, and was able to publish them and give them some coverage and tell them, hey guys, I have a podcast, I have listeners, can I ask you some questions, right? So that was lesson one. With a podcast, you can enter almost any door, and whether that be a digital door or a physical door, conferences love you. They'll give you free tickets everywhere. They'll even sometimes fly you out to get press passes to come document the event, right? So that's number one, right? Um, number two is that because you build such a great network of giving, it's hard, very like it's very, very hard to stay in touch with all these people that you build a network with, right? Everybody was on the podcast. So you have to figure out another means of giving beyond your time, right? Because what we're doing right now is like your time and my time physically right here. But how can you give beyond that, right? How can you scale your giving? So I have this newsletter that I do called uh, uh, Mint TLDR. It's a Sunday recap. There's about like 70 or almost 70 editions to date. But I have a group chat with the people that I've had on my podcast that I add them to. And I have my writer, Simon, who basically writes every single week, hey guys, any updates or news to share? So then they plug in their company updates that are relevant to the creator economy because the newsletter is all about giving an, uh, an update of what's happening in the week, right? So what better place to do it than from directly from the source? So all the startups, all the speakers, the founders, it's like, I think we're almost at 100 at this point. Sort of just like throwing updates in this Telegram group chat and then our team helping proje uh, project that even further, right? But also there's a level of curation. So it's not just like taking anybody's update if it's not relevant it's not ethical or whatever, like we still have our curation process, but it makes it easier to sort of, sort of like strengthen that relationship, right? Um, I also learned, bro, I learned so many things, but I think those are the two that I haven't talked about on, the, on other podcasts. So I'll leave it at that. And then what it means to be a Web3 creator, I think it means that you are the platform now, wherever you go, your audience follows. And that with that comes a plethora of information and data that you can tap into. The best creators across Web2, they use data religiously to understand how to further build, monetize, and own their audience. And the problem with that, though, is that these platforms, they act as walled gardens. And they, uh, they sort of restrict you on the information. Oftentimes, most importantly, some of you want to understand like the affluency of their followers, right? Facebook doesn't provide that. There's like ways to go around that. And as a Web3 creator, with everything being so transparent and open, the new follower is a collector. And with having a collector, you sort of like have somebody that's been, that has a memento of sort of what, of something in their wallet that belongs to you. And then they sort of can follow you wherever you go across your journey using different tools like token gating, for example, right? So I think what it means to be a Web3 creator is building an interoperable audience building an audience that you own, building an audience that you can formally sort of directly communicate to that's not dependent on algorithms, for example, and using the data of your audience to further understand how to get their experiences for them and how to monetize them better, right? 
as a creator myself, Austin, I try to think of different ways as to how I can further enlighten my creators or my collectors. I think I've done something that other creators haven't done where I've been able to sort of bridge the gap between my collectors and my listeners. And I've done it through different funnels to sort of like, yeah, we can talk about that later, but I always try to understand who the hell they are so that I can become better at what I do now, right? Whereas in the beginning, it was very much curating things that interest me and then building an audience based off that. But now it's a combination of both. It's understanding who they are and being able to create stuff for them in a more intentional, direct way. So I think that's what it means to be a Web3 creator. I love it. And you gave me a softball to talk about Bella. So I definitely want to dive into that as we talk about on-chain data and owning your data and owning your audience. Give me give the audience an overview of what Bello is, why you started it, and what what it really can do for sure. creators. So Bello is a no code analytics platform. It's intended to be the intelligence layer for the Web three creator economy, helping people like you and I, Austin, and people listening, ideally, to understand who the hell are the people collecting their NFTs, what's happening behind a zero x address, right? Because behind majority of these zero x addresses if they're not bots they're real people right just like you and i they have interests needs wants and how can we tap into that in an ethical non-intrusive manner right so bellow surfaced from a problem that i faced myself as a creator so i'm a creator building for creators and one thing that i learned is that i've given out tens of thousands of free nfts to my community that's my way of saying thank you at the end of every season which i can get into later and I had this hypothesis where if I knew more about who my collectors were, I could probably create better content for them and I could probably find better ways to monetize by finding deals and partnerships and communities that they already align with, right? So I couldn't go to Dune, I couldn't go to Nansen and all the other data tools. So I hit up my good friend, Ellie, who is now the co-founder of Bello. And we went to ETH Amsterdam in April. We built the initial MVP using sound.xyz music data to showcase Snoop Dogg's collectors. And uh, we were one of, uh, yeah, we were one of, one of the projects that won out of like 165 projects, okay? And we've been working on it ever since. So it's a, and now it's October 27th, 3.32 p.m. Pacific time. It's been a little over six months of working on Bello. We announced Bello to the world August 5th for a private beta launch, and we've been getting really good feedback. And the TLDR, if there's any reason why you should care is that if you're a creator, there's never been a more important time to understand who your audience is and to find better ways to, to, to deliver better value for them and to find better ways to also ethically extract value as well, to monetize, to, 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 to live off your creative craft, right? And to be frank, we need data to do that, right? We can't just keep throwing darts on a wall and guessing. We need, we need help making informed decisions. And Bello helps you do that, basically. So for example, what does Bello help me do, Austin? Okay. Bello has helped me. I was okay. going to ask so you. Bello has helped me sort of understand who my collectors were based off, for example, the platforms that they're collecting on. So I noticed that a lot of them have been collecting on Zora. And what's interesting is that I had never really done any interviews or content with Zora before, which is weird because if our collectors, we share collectors in common, then that means I should probably create content with Zora. So the first episode that I did with Eric Reppel was an executive at Zora, got 40% more downloads than a typical podcast episode. The second episode I did with wow. Zora with Tyson Batistella, that episode got about 50% more downloads than a typical podcast episode. All right, whoa, like there's interesting overlaps between my yeah. collectors and I can use that to influence my content strategy as well, right? Okay, really cool and long. Number two and long. So I was able to grow my audience. The next thing that creators want is to make money. How can we help them make money using Bello? 
two ways, very simply put, through the MVP. I noticed that a lot of them are Aave native and also multi-chain on Matic. And Lens Protocol came in as a sponsor for season six. They ended up being my biggest sponsor to date and helped me sort of like liberate my creative freedom in the best ability that I've ever, ever, that I've ever been able to. And I brought them thousands of new users to their platform. That's a TLDR. I'm not going to say how many, but thousands of new users to their platform. And it yeah. was a very fruitful collaboration, right? I won, they won, and using data to make sense of that narrative helped a lot, right? We also help creators figure out what to sell their NFTs at, right? We're able to see what their collectors have been purchasing in, let's say, the last 60 days, for example. And based off that, you can sort of tell what their purchasing behavior is and use that information to understand what you should be selling your NFTs at. So if you notice that your 300 plus collectors purchased 1,000 NFTs in the last 60 days, and that 60% of those purchases were purchased for less than 0.05 ETH, then probably the price you should be selling your NFTs at is less than 0.05 ETH. So guess what? All the podcast NFTs that I sell, they're all less than 0.05 ETH because of that data, right? So it's helped me make money. It's helped me build an audience. And I use it as a way to sort of influence my content strategy. But that's just me. I can talk about other examples as to how other creators are using it. But I'll, I'll end it right there. I've been ranting for a minute. <laughs> No, it's it, it's great, and it's been really exciting to see you launch Bellow and what it's become today. I know when we we chatted months ago, and you gave me a demo, it was like a light bulb went off because I personally, in my time at Venice, had been asking for a cross protocol CRM, and I think it would be great to dive into why this is only possible in Web three. You touched a little bit earlier on the walled gardens of Web two. But these are tools that creators have been asking for forever. It's not that they don't know that they want the data. It's that the data hasn't been available. So can you talk about why this is a paradigm shift and why it is only possible yes, in Web3? Yes, because in Web3, when you build an audience, like I said earlier, a follower is now a collector, right? A subscriber is now a collector. So we're understanding there's, there's a monumental shift in understanding how to build an audience, and it's through collecting, right? It's not necessarily through follower count. Follower count help propel messages and then lead to collectors. But the real indication of a new follower is through a collector. That's my bet. That's my thesis. Okay. People will probably argue with me differently, but that's sort of how I understand it. And as someone who has a bunch of collectors and whether they're free collectors or paid collectors, doesn't matter. They're collectors. Every single zero X address on Ethereum. Okay. There's a lot of stuff sitting in that wallet address, right? And typically what we've only been able to do is use platforms like Zerion and Zapper, which I love and I use, to wallet watch different addresses, get notifications on their trades, whatever it may be, see what's in their wallet. But we've never really been able to do that on an aggregate level. Take a bunch of wallet addresses and see who these people are in a no-code, user-friendly way, right? So Bello came about because I understand as a creator, because I am a creator, that these wallet addresses are going to be my everything, right? And that the more collectors I build, quality collectors I build, and the more lines of communication that I have to them, the more powerful I become in the eyes of brands, right? And other communities when it comes to sort of delivering messages about important stuff. So if, if for example, I don't know, random example, Lens Protocol sees that I target 80% of their users, right? And they don't have a direct line of communication to them because I have all the email addresses linked to the wallet addresses. Lens or Ave or another brand will pay me top money, for example, to be able to communicate those messages to them, right? And by doing so, I can create call to actions and different activities on chain using the wallet right. addresses that allow for the interoperability of your audience. So wherever you go, your audience follows. And the big aha moment is by understanding how data works in Web2. When you post on Instagram or Snapchat or YouTube or Facebook, each one of these platforms, because they own the content, 
they can provide the analytics accordingly based off that. But in Web3, the user posts on chain and all the platforms build around that, all the protocols build around that interaction. So in Web3, the creator is the platform. That's the unlock over here, right? So wherever they go, their community follows. And platforms and protocols and applications, they build around that, right? Or at least the smartest ones that have realized that's how it needs to be done, I, I, I'd argue have seen the most success, right? So, yeah, I mean, I could go, I can go on and on and on, but I guess that's a good place. <laughs> I, I love it. There, there's something I want to make sure that the audience didn't miss, and I, I want to use this also as an opportunity for you to kind of explain some of the strategies that you've used. You talked about effectively creating a funnel from followers and listens, plays to collectors. I think people need to know that like those are not on top of one another. The hope is that over time, you're converting more followers and listeners to collectors, but there is a funnel and downstream impact that happens. And so you've done something really interesting with first with free NFTs, and I'd love for you to talk about how you went about doing that, but you've also enabled uh, the collection of email addresses, which is something that I don't see a lot of people in Web3 do. So if you want to start yeah. first by talking about how you go about adding collectors and then the importance of email yeah. addresses yeah. as well. Everything that I do is content focused. So I need to find ways to capture my listeners and my viewers information so that I can continuously retarget them with new content, right? Um, and I feel like if if somebody were to hear me say retarget, they think, oh, he's just another one of those guys. He's trying to retarget. But like, no, like that's how I understand <laughs> it as someone who's trying to build an audience. Like there's different, there's, there's different tools available for access that you can use to sort of capture somebody's email address, but not in an intrusive way. Like they opt in to give it to you, right? So my, my top right. level funnel, okay, if we're talking about funnels, is through a free NFT, right? Um, and what I do is that I basically do these collaborations with brands. And part of the package of them buying my NFT is me doing an end of the season pin. And a pin, P-I-N, a pin is essentially something that you can wear on your t-shirt in the metaverse, right? That's sort of how I see it. So that when we are in our 3D avatars, you can wear all the mint season pins and show your love for me as a creator by just doing this non-intrusive, very fun sort of like visual thing. But a pin, essentially an NFT, an 1155 NFT, that you collect on either Ethereum, Polygon, Soon, Solana, and all the other chains. But right now, Ethereum and Polygon. And I do this activation with brands where I do like a Mint X brand collaboration. And through that, people sort of fill out their contact information to receive that pin. Because when somebody collects that pin, I then have a vault of information at the end of the season where people can unlock additional content. So what is so valuable that they can may maybe unlock? I put together, well, I didn't, my team put together this database of the 400 plus music NFT collectors. It has like 90% accuracy, but it's enough to see value through it, right? It's, and it's, it's organized by their address, their Twitter handles, their, um, their Ethereum addresses, their, uh, net worth, the platforms that they collect on. And it's, it serves as a great tool to sort of help a music creator get their first door, foot in the door to find their first few collectors. And people have gotten jobs through it. People have found their collectors through it. So it's been a really cool thing to then get for free and then unlock for free, right? So I put together this vault. They kept the free NFT. And then what I get, right, I get their Ethereum address and I get their email address. And why is that important? Because I then export that data for my CRM. I import it into Substack, okay? And then I just create my content and I just send them the emails. And if they want, they can unsubscribe. It's all good. But the unsubscribe rate is very, very minimal. So it worked as a really good strategy. 
I send them the podcast, I send them the newsletters, and I can see from Substack's perspective, because Substack has really high deliverability, I can see who's listening, liking, commenting, watching, etc. right? In a non-intrusive way, but I can actually export that data, import, ba- import that back into my CRM, and then I'm able to link all those engagement-based metrics with the wallet addresses, allow list everybody that has actually been engaging with my content to claim the pin, and that's how I build my collector base online. That's the funnel. And then I plug in that data into Bello, right? And then I try to understand who my, my listeners and my, my, my viewers are so that I can create better content for them and find better sponsorships for that, right? Because I'm not going to sell them uh, a discount on a DeFi protocol and their whatever, right? If they don't care about DeFi, if all they care about is like NFTs on OpenSea, and maybe OpenSea and I should do a collaboration because we love each other so much or our collectors love each other so much, right? So yeah, it's not perfect, but it works. I love what you're yeah. It works. And and quite frankly, you're the you're the first real podcaster that I had seen experimenting with free NFTs before there was like the free NFT meta. I think there's also a framework for a lot of people in the audience that an NFT does not need to be a financial no. transaction. This idea that there's an exchange that's happening just because you have an, something in your wallet and that it can be a fair exchange. It's not that you're just extracting, if anything, you're looking to add more value back to them by having this information and being able to do unlockable content, which we should definitely talk a little bit more about, uh, and bring on different sponsors that you know your audience are going to enjoy. It allows you to create better, more engaging content, which is just like a virtuous cycle for for everyone. I do want to talk a little bit more about your experiments because you have done not just these free NFTs, but even within the past week, I've been following your lead as you started to do podcast NFTs and dropping them on Zora and doing paid mints for different editions or having them drop early on Zora. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do that and what you were looking to yes. accomplish? So there's a big now uh, environment around collecting audio files, WAV files specifically for music. Um, and something that I always think about is like monetization and how could I find new creative ways to monetize in a very aligned manner. Um, so I started doing podcast NFTs mainly because I wanted to see if there's value in collecting a podcast NFT. And like, I deliberately say that these are experiments because I don't know if there's the equivalent in the podcast world as there is in the music world to collect something similar, similarly to how you connect, collect a music vinyl, right? A physical vinyl. It can be argued that it's the same sort of experience, if not more powerful to collect the music NFT, right? But what's the equivalent of that for podcasts? I'm not sure. One thing that I am sure about is that I don't get paid shit from Spotify or Apple Music on my streams, and neither do you, bro, <laughs> and neither yeah. do does anybody yeah. else, right? So, and that's mainly because we have a different business model. We do like ad ad based business models, and we're able to upload a file to sound to Spotify without their control of what what is in that file per se. Like they won't be able to eliminate the ads in the file, right? Even though Spotify has their own ad network, we still don't get shit from that, right? So yeah. maybe podcast NFTs could work. So I know it would work for me because I'll be able to make money through it and support my creative endeavors, but will it work for the people who want to collect it? And why would you collect a podcast NFT? So we tested this now four times. My first one was a one of one, and the last three were additions. And I deliberately say that this is an experiment to see what the community thinks and I still don't know, Austin, if people are collecting it because they, they because they support me or because they actually understand and want to collect an episode. I think it's a mix, right? That's sort of like my 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 understanding. Yeah. 
because if you look at the comments, like they say like, oh, I love this episode. I wish I could collect it, right? Like people who, who, have, who understand the yeah. collector-based environment are already in the organic habit of collecting stuff. So they automatically become hoarders and want to collect digital stuff, right? So podcasts could just be another element of that. An, a, a blog could be another element. Anything media related could be an element of that. So the way I see it is like, okay, maybe this episode unlocked something for you, or maybe this episode helped you discover something, or maybe this episode did something for you, um, or maybe you just want to support me because I've been giving free content and you've wanted to give, but you've never had the avenue to give because I don't have a tipping element on my page, right? Intentionally, right? Right. Um, because I've always been sensitive about taking taking or like earning money from my from my listeners, right? I was like, I'd rather go the B2B route because it's less threatening and I could be more creative and it's I can make more revenue through it, very simply put. Um, yeah. So the podcast NFTs are my way of experimenting with collecting audio files. And I'm starting to understand that people want to collect podcast NFTs because they've actually helped them open their eyes to something new. There's, I'll use one example. Start with one collector. Spins808. Okay, um, that, that initial episode of me, Cooper, and Blau of Blockchain and Booze, that's the episode that got him into blockchain and booze or into music NFTs, excuse me. And he's been, he's been following my journey ever since. And he collected one of my music and like one of my podcast NFTs on like a music NFT episode. And he's like, you're the guy who got me into music NFTs. This is an obvious collect from, right. right? So I'm thinking at scale with someone like Tim Ferriss, who has millions upon millions of listeners or Lex Friedman, who has a rabid fan base, right? What has their content done to their fans? And could they introduce a new line of revenue by, by collecting stuff? I don't know. But how many Tim Ferrisses are there? How many Lex Friedmans are there? 80% of podcasts fail, right? But it's still a really growing niche and that Spotify has doubled down on. So I'm trying to evaluate the market opportunity and the behavioral side of it, but also like why creators would want to do it. I don't know. It's, a, it's an experiment. As you can see, I'm thinking out loud here. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, and I love, I love that you're always, it, I think it's a lesson for creators in general. These are two way doors. Like these are experiments. If it doesn't work, pull back, try something new. I think similar to how you change your format of seasons, this is just another experiment. And I see a lot of parallels between the beginning of music NFTs, like to, talk about our our friend cooper again people thought cooper was crazy like like i just saw david Hoffman finally tweet out that he was a, a music nft convert after seeing crypto twitter for months and months on end talk about how music nfts didn't make sense and i got similar pushback from some friends who are like explain podcast nfts to me and i get it like it will be i think if it continues to develop it will be something that will take a while for people to understand because as much as you can make the analog to people collecting vinyls, a lot of people still can't make that bridge in their head. They're like, a vinyl is something I physically own. This is something that everyone can listen to. And so I, I think it'll continue to develop. The, the thing that has always kind of stuck with me is what would it look like to own one of the first episodes of like Joe Rogan or a Tim Ferriss or a Lex Friedman and say that you were there first that would, you know, funny enough, I think I posted this in our group chat. Kevin Rose dropped his first podcast NFT a year ago for Modern Finance. He did a one of one. It sold for three and a half ETH, like right when he minted it. He has never talked about it. 
I would be curious to know if it was listed today after everything that he's done with proof and the success of that, all of the venture raising, what that would go for on the market. I would right. bet that it would be a right. multiple of three. Right. That would be Absolutely. my guess. Absolutely. I think you nailed the dot. I'm surprised how you even found that. And that makes me start, like, it makes me think, like, what's the first music NFT? Right. And how much is that worth? Have we sort of, have we dug through the artifacts right. of, of, of like Etherscan and found the first wave tokenized wave file? I don't know who's done it. I don't know. Hit me up. I want to buy it. The point is, is like, there's a, there's room for, for everything, right? One man's trash is another man's treasure. There's a market for everything. What you may collect is something what someone else won't collect, you know? So continue on with the experiments and I hope more podcasts do it. I hope more people come, come into the picture because the more podcasters do it, the more it elevates everybody else. Right. And it's like, now it's us two doing it, you know, <laughs> like, like there, there's like, who else? Yeah. Do? Who knows? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So yes. just keep, keep experimenting. So we are, we are coming to the close of the hour. So I want to have a few questions to wrap up. Where, where are we on season six? How many, how many episodes are left and can you share anything about yeah, season seven? So, wow. Season six has about a week and a half, two weeks left. And by then, we would have done 25 episodes. Um, it has also been the biggest season to date. Um, 24,000 wow. submissions have been filed for a pin, which is wild. And that's know, insane. And congrats. A lot, like a bunch of them are, are, I don't want to say a bunch, but a, a number of them are bots that realize the opportunity. But I'm able to sort of like deter those bots by understanding their engagement and their open rates and all that stuff, right? Mm. Um, so there's about like 18, 19,000 emails that, and emails and wall addresses that actually qualify for a pin. My estimation is maybe half of that will claim, maybe a quarter of that will claim, which will still be my biggest claim in history I, of the Mint podcast. So I'm really excited about that. And then with that, um, I'm doing really something special that, uh, instead of just like having my content in the vault, I'm trying something new and hitting up a few close people that. I like what they're doing and I believe in their creatorship and I want to feature them. So the vault is going to consist, and I guess it's the first time I'm announcing it. So depending on when this episode comes out, maybe we can plan yeah. a, a release, but essentially is that I'm curating a, a few other creators to feature in the vault, not only my, my content, but their content as well. So that the entire community can sort of see all these creators and that we can sort of be, you remember that initial, uh, the initial group that Drake, Lil, uh, Nicki Minaj, Lil Wayne, all those people. Young money, it's young money, web free young money. That's what it's gonna be. <laughs> Let's go. So I'm creating much content. So that's that's gonna be in the vault, okay? So that's something that's different, something that's new about season six. Season seven, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut because uh, I'm planning a theme. I'm planning a okay. lineup already. Some people are confirmed for season seven, and um, it's gonna be bigger, better, and better than ever. Yes, I'll just say that. Yeah, yes. I can't wait. Yes. I can't wait. And I guess this will be the the first time we formally announced as well that I, I am part of this vault. Yes. So I'm very excited. I am writing uh, as we speak. I've got I've got a really piece, a good, exciting piece that I'm excited about of, of putting up there um, to have in the vault. And so you'll see when, when this drops and in the One Big Idea weekly uh, email that comes out that you'll have to go get a pin in order to go listen, yes. go listen to men in order to go read this new, uh, yes. this new piece. So I'm, I'm very grateful that you asked me to, to be included Dude, I'm in this. I'm excited. This, this has been uh, great. 
I'm excited for your journey as a podcaster. What episode is this for you? This is episode three. When it comes out, this will be episode three. Episodes. Yeah, early, early days. Top right, five. Man. Top I'm five. <laughs> so before yes. I let you go, I gotta I gotta ask you one thing. So I've been asking everyone who's who's jumped on so far, and what is your one big idea for the audience? We talked about a handful of things, whether it's you know how to be a creator, what a creator looks like in Web three, everything that you're doing with Bella. What is the one big idea that they should leave? Um, with? Harness data like it's your best friend because with data you get answers, and with answers you can take actions, confident actions. I think the one big idea, as it pertains to this entire conversation, as it pertains to my background. I think the future is bright for creators in Web3, and I think we've only sort of skimmed the surface of what's possible. We have yet to see sort of creators really use this, these, these elements of like owning your data, being the platform, and taking your followers with you everywhere you go in like a unified way, right? So I think that's like that, that big idea encompasses those three features, and hopefully a project like Bello plays a small part in that, right? And understanding what that data means and so that you can become a better creator to helpfully hopefully better monetize better grow and yeah better live your creative endeavors so that's my uh that's my one big idea amazing well adam thank you so much for coming on really appreciate it and to everyone listening we'll let's see you go. next week <laughs> let's go Thanks for listening to this week's edition of One Big Idea. As a thank you, head to onebigidea.xyz to claim your free OG status NFT. I'll be closing off minting after this initial run of episodes, so be sure to grab yours before they are gone. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.